raise the song of Harvest Home. This uh, Thanksgiving season, we've done a little mini-series, if you will, on uh, how we live out some of our songs of Thanksgiving. And this is the third of the hymns that we'll be thinking about this year. I've mentioned before, it's easy to sing songs without necessarily being intentional and deliberate about what we're promising, what we're pledging, or even what we're being called to by the poets who have written the lyrics to these hymns. And so the challenge for us then is to internalize the song in such a way that we will perform what we're pledging, that we'll do what we are encouraged to do. Uh, Just a word about this uh, uh, hymn and the hymn writer. Uh, I don't know if you find these little uh, background sketches. They're they're brief. Uh, As you can see at the bottom of the page, this uh, hymn was written by Henry Alford, uh, who was an English clergyman. He was uh, a rector of a church in the... an Anglican church in 1844 when this hymn was composed and published. In his day, he was known as a a capable preacher, uh, but also as a scholar. Um, Kind of interesting here. He uh, lectured at Cambridge University for a year in 1841 and 42. In the 1850s, he served a large congregation in London, and eventually he became the dean of the cathedral in Canterbury, uh, in the hierarchy of the Church um, of England. A a dean is the presiding bishop over a cathedral. Uh, So there are bishops who preside over dioceses, and then there's a dean of a cathedral. Um, His literary career Uh, included not only publishing uh, hymns, he edited the works of the 17th century English poet John Donne. Some of you know Donne and appreciate his poetry. Uh, He published several volumes of his own verse, uh, but his chief fame, and Dave will perk up his ears on this one, um, he uh, published an eight-volume edition of the New Testament in Greek, uh, which was a very, very uh, significant contribution to the progress of the study of the New Testament, particularly in the original Greek language. And he worked on that for 20 years, published it uh, over time. The uh, central imagery, as you can see from the title, as well as from the whole hymn, is this idea of harvest. And of course, we think about harvest at Thanksgiving time. That's the point. It's a, it's a Thanksgiving that comes at the end of the season for the growth of particularly crops um, in the field or vineyards or um, harvesting trees and so forth. Um, and the, the imagery of the harvest is used, first of all, literally to thank the Lord for material blessings and then also figuratively, as we'll see. And in both those ways, then, the poet drives home his theme. And we could say that the theme of the hymn is uh, calling us to sing our 
thanksgiving to God, both for His present material blessings, but even more for the promised hope of eternal blessings when the Lord Jesus returns to gather in His great harvest. So there's the present and the future. There's the possession and the hope that attaches to God's promise that are brought out in this hymn. So we're going to spend a few minutes thinking about it as we have done uh, with our other hymns in this series. But let's just ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, as we reflect on these hymns, we know that the authors of the hymns were men and women steeped in Your Word and gifted to uh, bring to expression things that when we learn these hymns, when we sing them, we often find them to be so apt, uh, so expressive of our own feelings, that they really do become our words, even though we did not compose them. And we pray, O Lord, that as we think about um, Pastor Alford's work here, that you will, again, deepen and extend our sense of gratitude uh, for your present blessings that we enjoy every single day, but also for that prospect of an eternal blessed future, a future of joy, a future of holiness in your presence in a new heavens and a new earth after that great and glorious coming day of resurrection to which we all look forward and aspire And may Christ, who is the center of it all, receive the glory and praise. Amen. Amen. So in the first verse here, and you can kind of keep the hymn in front of you if you want, just to refer to the the lyrics, we're reminded, and this has been true of the other hymns of Thanksgiving that we have talked about as well, that every good and perfect gift that we enjoy here and now... um, and those blessings that we anticipate for the future come from one source. And that source is our Creator and our Sustainer, the God of the Bible. And in particular, the one that Jesus reveals as our Father in Heaven, the one who loves us so much. And so, we're told, Come ye thankful people, come, raise the song of harvest home, All is safely gathered in ere the winter storms begin. Uh, We didn't get the winter storm today, but neither did we gather in the harvest. We're thinking outside of our own personal experience, most of us. Uh, I know my dad was raised in a farming community. Maybe some of you have roots in that world, but uh, uh, most of us don't have first-hand experience of farming except maybe in the movies or on TV. God our Maker doth provide for our wants to be supplied. Come to God's own temple, come raise the song of Harvest Home. And so it's an invitation to come to God, to His temple, and to give thanks to Him. We're addressed as thankful people. So I suppose... uh, This excludes unthankful people. If you're not thankful to God, then stay at home. Don't come and pretend to be thankful unless you sincerely are. And I'm I'm put in mind of of when Jesus healed the ten lepers and nine of them went away 
happy to be healed, but not at all grateful to the one who brought that healing to them. They just kind of took it as a matter of course. And again, think about so many in America. Maybe the most prosperous nation in the history of the world, and except on a very superficial level, the most ungrateful people in the world, taking for granted that somehow we have a right to this prosperity. But we are God's people as well as Americans, and I hope there is in you a a sincere thanksgiving spirit. And so when we're invited to come as thankful people, we're ready to do that. Yes, we, we want to acknowledge God. Over the years, although in the last few years because of our travel plans to visit family, we haven't been with you on Thanksgiving Day. But uh, when we were, I came to cherish the Thanksgiving service more than the Thanksgiving meal. It was just really, really special to be with God's people on that day for that particular purpose. Now again, we ought to be thankful all the time, but if you're simple-minded like me, I can only concentrate on one or two things at a time. So if I'm going to really concentrate on thankfulness, I have to diminish the the, uh, distractions and, and come to the Lord. We want to express our gratitude. So that's the challenge. Are we going to be every Lord's Day through this upcoming year, between now and next Thanksgiving season, are we going to come as thankful people? You you wake up on a Sunday morning and you can think of, well, yeah, we could do this. We could read the paper. We can have a cup of coffee. We can maybe think about a football game that's going to come on later. Um, All kinds of things that we can think about. Or we can wake up with a grateful heart and say, today as a thankful person I'm invited to come and give thanks to God again for His many, many mercies. We're here to raise a song of Harvest Home. You know, that phrase, Harvest Home, has, has be, kind of come into our language, but it, you know, what is exactly does it mean? Well, I think what Alfred is saying here, we're raising a song because of this completed in-gathered harvest. Now it's ours. It's brought home into our barns. And again, we don't experience that, most of us firsthand, but we can at least imagine it. We're invited to come to God's own temple. Um, And yet, we don't really come to God's temple. Well, we do. We come to Jesus Christ, who is himself the fulfillment of the temple. But we also come as God's temple. When we gather together, we are putting up the temple again. I mean, we're always the temple as God's people. But there's a sense in our assembly. I think of what Peter said in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to Him, that is you by faith have come to Christ. He's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So he becomes the cornerstone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we come to God's own temple Because when we assemble, we see that we are a local expression of that place where God 
meets with his people. I mean, that was the significance of the temple. It wasn't just a magnificent building, although it was that. But it was the place where God said, I will come and meet you there. And that's why Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, because in his own person, the eternal Son of God and a genuine human being, God and man have met together. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we seek the forgiveness of sins. But more than that, in union with Christ, we have communion with God. And of course, we can take that with us anywhere. We don't have to be here in this courtyard or there in that room. We don't have to be in some magnificent cathedral. We are God's people. We are His spiritual house and we offer as priests holy spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God and we talked about this last Sunday our bodies are the sacrifices that we bring to God and so we're thankful people we come to worship God we come to praise him and the and the harvest that we're contemplating in this particular verse is just a reminder of God's faithful, every single day, abundant provision for our material needs. Um, You know, you often hear people say, God will give us what we need, but not necessarily what we want. Well, in this hymn, want means something that you need. You lack it. And so, he's not saying you can, you know, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? He supplies our needs. And as a matter of fact, a good number of our desires, our pleasures as well. God is our maker, and He doth provide for our wants to be supplied. So when you think about this, as a non-farmer, as a non-rancher, as a non-food provider, what, what comes to mind? Uh, again, some of you probably have the regular habit of pausing before a meal to thank the Lord for His provision. But you know, there are an awful lot of Christians who don't. They sit down and they eat. They prepare a meal to consume, but they don't prepare their heart to receive that meal with thanksgiving. So if you don't say grace regularly, you ought to work on that. Now again, sometimes grace can become sort of rote. um, But we remember. But think more broadly of that. I mean, a farming community, of which there are many, you know, when you drive up to Sonora, we go up through the Central Valley of California there along Highway 99, and there are fields on both sides, and pretty much anything that you can grow grows there uh, and there's farmers in the field and they're plowing or they're harvesting Um, and so we ought to think ourselves so if we were farmers we would say yeah thank you Lord for this crop and here it is but we have to think more creatively because our food comes in boxes or in cellophane wrapping or in frozen food containers and so forth But we think of all of the different things that the Lord provides to bring it to us. I was also thinking, um, (laughs) I love road trips because when I road trip, I think about things. So here's all of these big trucks on the highway going back and forth. 
all of those men or women driving here or there, away from their homes and their families on the day before Thanksgiving because they've got to get a load of Foster Farms turkeys to your freezer compartment so that you can have them to eat. See, people who serve us that we've never met and we'll never have an opportunity to thank in person, but, but God provides for us through them. So we think about our gratitude to God. But whatever proximate provision God makes, it ultimately comes back to Him. Because again, as James says, every good, every perfect gift comes down to us from God. And we give Him thanks. We give Him praise. So that's, that's what we're called to remember. And I always think of the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's verse 18. You shall remember... That the Lord your God, uh, excuse me, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. I mean, these days, every day, we hear so much about economic news. What are the unemployment figures? What's the minimum wage? What is and, and many, for many people, that's the only question. You know, we go through an election cycle. Which candidate is going to promote our economic well-being, however we might define that, the most? I mean, Bill Clinton said famously, it's the economy, stupid. It's about that and that alone. And so we're thinking about that. And yet, with no sense that if God didn't sustain my body and my mind day by day, how would I ever be able to produce so that I and my family might have the things that we need? In the law of Moses, there was the provision that God's people remember God with the first fruits of their harvest. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So God is giving the land. They're going to reap a harvest, and the very first that God provides needs to be brought to Him. Now hold that thought a moment and think about how many people think about the church as just a bunch of money-grubbing people. The only reason you have a church is so that you can get people to, to give offerings. And then maybe the church will get, I mean, maybe the pastor will get rich or maybe they'll have a big, big building or, or something like that. But this is the picture. People who come out of the desert and have nothing now suddenly are living in cities that they didn't build, houses that they didn't buy. They're reaping harvests and they are so filled with gratitude to God for His provision that they're going to take the very first of what He provides and give it to Him. And that first fruits represents the whole harvest. Lord, everything I have is yours. And in token of that, I give you the first fruits. And that same uh, 
idea is present in the 26th chapter of Deuteronomy. Again, listen to this language. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and when you take possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground and which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose." And then as you give your offering, you're saying, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket of the produce from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord. So gratitude and giving. Now again, this isn't really a sermon on tithes and offerings, but it's, it's worth thinking about why do we give offerings to the church? And we can say, well, we want to extend the ministry of the church. We want to make sure that our pastor has something to eat, and I'm very grateful for the way you have cared for us. But what about the other side of it? What if I was independently wealthy, and all of our ministries were funded fully, The thank offering was a million dollars. Would you just say, well, they don't need it, so I won't give it? Or would gratitude impel you to say, the only, the way God has given me to show my gratitude is to give to Him that which represents everything. Again, we say, easy enough, everything that I have is yours, O Lord, and then we, what? A dollar, five dollars, twenty dollars in the offering plate. Is that is that the representation? Now again, I'm not saying this because you need to be scolded about not giving, but we all need to be reminded of the motivation for giving. We wouldn't have a single material blessing at all if it were not for the generosity of our Maker. And if we really believe that then gratitude impels us to give an expression. And an expression that's commensurate. Now again, you could argue over tithe or no tithe uh, in terms of an obligation, but if our giving really flows from a thankful heart, it's certainly going to represent something like that. I was just going to scoot through this, but I thought, no, and I'm talking to myself as well, Uh, Those of us who have a habit of tithing can tithe by habit. So this one is for me. Gratitude. Gratitude. And a recognition that without God's provision, we have nothing. Ungrateful people think, no, I only need God for extra blessings, but the ordinary stuff I can handle and provide for myself. And here it's just worth reminding ourselves that there's always a danger of ingratitude, taking things for granted, and that presumption. Um, In that same 8th chapter of Deuteronomy, one of the most important chapters, I think, in the whole Bible, we learn the lesson of the wilderness. In the wilderness, Israel didn't have anything, and God fed them with miraculous food, the manna and the quail, 
day after day after day. And each day was daily bread. You couldn't keep it overnight, except on the sixth day you could gather enough to cover the Sabbath day. But you know how the story goes. So in the wilderness, what did Israel learn through that testing? God says, I want you to know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Break it down. Think about it. I need food today. I need God's Word today. I need food tomorrow. The fact that I had food yesterday isn't good enough for today. I need it today, and then I need it the next day. And I need God's Word today, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then, they leave the wilderness... And now they go into the land where they have all that they could possibly want. And that's where the Lord says, but when that happens, when you're full, having been emptied, having learned to depend on me day after day, now you're going to have it all there. You're going to see it all. You can see the vineyards. You can see the orchards. You can see the wheat fields. And that's when you might think, my strength, My provision has given all of these things. I mean, some of you have read the story of the first Thanksgiving. And again, it's kind of iffy which year it was, and there were several Thanksgivings and so forth. But those pilgrims were believing people who had starved nearly to death for a couple of winters, and then they had a harvest. You think they were just going through the motions when they said, we thank you, Lord, for your blessings? Or did they learn afresh from the wilderness experience, having nothing, how to be truly grateful in the time of abundance? And that's the challenge for us. When we think about an economic downturn, we have no idea. Now again, individually, you can lose your job. You can wonder where your next meal is coming from. And again, we look to the Lord for that kind of help. But most of us are pretty sure that we're going to have a paycheck. Pretty sure that the grocery stores are going to be stocked. Pretty sure that we'll be able to get there, put our masks on, get in, get out, and come home and have that provision. Thoughtfulness. Thankfulness. Gratitude expressed in giving, in love. So those are the present provisions of God our Maker for which we must give thanks. But then, in the next verses, the the harvest takes on a figurative significance, an eschatological significance, a significance that looks towards the, the end. That's the eschaton. And uh, in verses 2 and 3, that's the significance of, of the picture of the harvest. All the world is God's own field, fruit unto His praise to yield, wheat and tares together sown unto joy or sorrow grown, first the blade and then the ear, then the full corn shall appear. Don't think of corn, think of grain. Again, the English call grain corn, and they call what we call corn uh, maize. Okay, so the full corn, the, the wheat sheaf will be full. Corn shall appear. Lord of harvest, grant that we wholesome grain and pure may be. Now the picture is of the whole world. It's God's own field. 
And human history is seen as a process of, of the human race growing toward a final day of harvest, ripening and, and growing. And as you can see here, those of you who know your Bible, there are allusions to two of Jesus' parables regarding the kingdom of God. The first is the so-called parable of the wheat and the tares, or as it's actually called in the text, the parable of the weeds in the field. But it's in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Just to remind you of it, Jesus here is explaining what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And the master said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? That is, gather the the weeds. But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. And then if you jump down to verse 36, uh, he's asked for an explanation. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And Jesus answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So Jesus himself is the one who sows the good seed. The field is the world. Just as the hymn says, the world is God's own field. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now we don't need to go into detail, but you see the picture. So history is like a season of growth for a wheat field. In history, there are those who are the sons of the kingdom, those who hear the gospel, they they trust in God. But along with them, Satan has his own followers, his own uh, not only sinful influences, but rebellious and sinful people. And they're going to grow together throughout this age. Uh, Sometimes they're a little hard to distinguish. There are rebels who look pretty good on the surface, and there are hypocrites who talk a good talk, but in their hearts they really... So that maturing process over time. But a day is coming when all people will be gathered in, and there will be then this separation. Those who will be judged eternally, those who will inherit 
the kingdom of the Father. And so this verse then is thinking about that day when God will separate us one from another in light of final judgment. And the challenge is, are you wheat or are you weeds? And then the other parable is uh, that of the mysterious growth of the kingdom of God. In chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 26, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, But when that grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Again, here the point is that though farmers cultivate the soil and they sow the seed, the real growth doesn't come from anything that they can do. It's as if the ground produces the growth all by itself. But the picture, of course, is that real growth in the life of a human being is dependent not finally on anything that we can do for ourselves or one another, but God who gives the increase, God who causes the growth. So, so our author here in this hymn has brought these two things together. Human history is moving toward a climax. And that climax is described as a season of harvest. And that which is going to be harvested is not grain, but people. Everyone who has ever lived, those living at the time of the return of Christ, but all of us who may have come and gone prior to that time. And that's picked up in verse 3. For the Lord our God shall come and shall take His harvest home. From His field shall in that day all offenses purge away. Give His angels charge at last in the fire the tares to cast, but the fruitful ears to store in His garner evermore. And that language of final judgment as harvest is picked up in the book of Revelation as well. I won't read the passage, but if you want to look it up later, it comes in chapter 14, verse 14 and following. Again, put in the sickle, harvest the nations against that day of final judgment. So what are we thinking about when we sing this song? Okay, we remember these parables. The challenge is, do we live our lives here and now in light of the conviction that that day is coming? Most of us don't even think about our own day of death, do we? If it comes to mind for some reason, we we quickly push it out of our thought. Um... But that day is coming. We'll be individually harvested when we die. And the whole human race will be harvested at the end of time when Jesus returns. And for many people, that's just, that's just kind of flaky Christian mythology. There's nothing really to worry about. When we die, it's just oblivion. We're, we're just done. They put our body in the grave. That's the end of all that we are. And that's the hope for many people that there just won't be anything after death. But that's not the biblical teaching. And we're all moving toward that day. Why is it that if we get a cancer diagnosis, we suddenly panic? 
because it brings mortality into our view. Now, you could get killed in a car wreck any day, but you don't think about that every time you get in the car. Suddenly you're trembling. You can't even steer the car down the road because you're so afraid that you might die that day. But the Bible says your life is just a vapor. You're on the way to this harvest and there are eternal consequences as to whether we believe and embrace the grace of God that He has given us in His Son or if we just say, no, not interested, not interested, don't need it. That day will be a great day of awakening for consciences that have been sleeping their whole life long. And if any of us who are here are pegging their hope upon the fact that when they die, it'll all be over, they still don't want to die, but that'll be it, then we need to hear the word of the Lord that's reflected. That day of judgment is coming. For many of us, thinking about eschatology is just confusing, it's controversial, what difference does it make? But here the prayer comes, Lord of harvest, grant that we, wholesome grain and pure may be. Now we can't be that by nature. That requires God working in us and our responding to the message of Jesus Christ. Confessing that we are sinners in need of His mercy and casting ourselves upon the mercy that is promised us and demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ coming into the world. We don't want to be tares whose final destiny is eternal sorrow and loss, but rather that good seed that is maturing toward a harvest of joy. One more thing in the last verse, verse 4. In this time between now, or really between the life of Jesus, His death and resurrection, and this coming harvest at the end of time, in this age between, which is the age of growth and maturity for the kingdom, you and I are called to become instruments of the ingathering of God's people. And we do that through our witness. Our words of witness, our lives of witness, living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 4, Even so, Lord, quickly come to thy final harvest home. Gather thou thy people in, free from sorrow, free from sin. So we're asking God to come. Now here you've got to think between the lines a little bit. Is this just going to happen as we sit and wait and watch? What instrumentality is God going to use to gather this harvest? Well, in the end, it will be a harvest of resurrection. But how do you guarantee a place in that harvest of resurrection? We must come to Christ by faith here and now. Book of Revelation talks about a first death and a second death, a first resurrection and a second resurrection. We gather by evangelism before Jesus gathers in the end by resurrection. And that's the call. According to Jesus, the harvest of the nations is already there and prepared. Remember when He had talked to the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4? Talked to her about 
her husband and she went off to the town and uh, as he's discussing things with his disciples while she's off into the town, um, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. As he speaks to this woman, And she becomes convinced that this is the Messiah because he's told her everything that she ever did, principally about her serial husbands. You've had several husbands, and the husband you're living with right now isn't your husband. So he points to her sin, but in the context of forgiving sin and being gracious to her, and she immediately goes back into the town and begins to tell others. And it may well be that people are following her out, back out to see Jesus. And, and Jesus says, look, and maybe he means literally, look, here comes the harvest because of that woman's witness. And then he talks to his disciples and said, we all have a responsibility as witnesses. And in that, we enter into this harvest. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he sent out his followers to bear witness to him and along with him. And and in Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. When he sent out the 72 others, to go and preach. Again, he repeated in Luke 10, verse 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. How do we go from becoming a tear, a weed, a child of the devil, to becoming this good wheat, this good wholesome seed. It's by the transition of a response to the witness of the Bible to Jesus Christ. And that's usually conveyed to us by some other believer who says, listen to to what, what I learned about Jesus Christ. I didn't even know I was a sinner. And then Jesus convicted me that I need a Savior and that He is that Savior. And that He's not here to scold me or to rebuke me, but to redeem me. And so He says, forsake your sin and come to Me. Trust in Me. You see, we've experienced that. If you're a Christian today in one form or another, and I know God works sometimes when you're so young you don't even know what's happening until you grow up. But if you've tasted of the converting ministry of God, why don't you talk to other people about what you have found in Jesus Christ. How can you and I remain silent? We talk about food. We talk about movies. We talk about politics. But how many of you 
regularly bear witness to transforming grace so that someone else might hear that message. You want to keep it all for yourself? You say, I'm going to participate in this wonderful harvest of joy, but I don't want you to have any opportunity, so, so I'm going to keep quiet. See, that's the challenge. We have work to do here and now during this period of the growth of the human race, our peers, our family members, so that on that day, when the harvest finally comes, the resurrection harvest, people that we have witnessed to will receive that resurrection life. We can sing this song, but it implies a challenge to us to be more vocal. We hear Gino tell us regularly about the people that he's witnessing to. And we admire that, don't we? Let's imitate it and be more vocal about our witness. The task of the church in this age is to gather and to disciple, and we do that through our witness to our Lord Jesus, who He is, why He came to earth. So we've got a season now where the topic of Christmas is at least on the table, however confused and, and mixed up and obscure it might be, you can talk about why Christmas is so very special. Some of you wear the little button, Jesus is the reason for the season. Does it ever provoke a question? Why do you wear a dumb button like that? Or do you just wear it and carry on about your business? That's not witness. Witness is doing what that Samaritan woman did. Come and see the man who told me everything there was to know about me and saved me, pardoned me, forgave me, and gives me the hope of eternal resurrection life on that day when the harvest is finally gathered in. So dear brothers and sisters, and, and I'm, I am speaking to myself as much as to any one of you, as we sing our thanksgiving to God for His present material blessings, and we enjoy so many of them here and now, let us also look forward eagerly and work diligently Send forth laborers into the harvest. Look forward diligently to that promise of eternal blessings when Jesus returns. Even so, Lord, quickly come to Thy final harvest home. Gather Thou Thy people in, free from sorrow, free from sin. There forever purified in Thy presence to abide eternal life, to live in eternal fellowship with the triune God through Jesus Christ. Come with all thy angels, come, raise the glorious harvest home. You hear in that the the words at the end of the book of Revelation, even so come, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would challenge us with the songs that we sing.
particularly this morning, about the kind of tangible gratitude that should come to expression in our giving, in our offerings. There are other ways that we can show our thanks to You, O Lord, but we, we do pray that week after week, with thoughtful and thankful hearts, we would bring the tithes and the offerings into Your storehouse, not out of a mere sense of obligation, but out of this overwhelming sense of gratitude because God, our Maker, does provide all our needs and many of our desires to be abundantly satisfied. Oh Lord, we have so many things and we are grateful for them, but they can become a distraction. So rather than taking them away, which would be one cure for our ingratitude, we pray rather that You would help us to use our things, including our money, more and more to advance Your kingdom through our expressions of thanksgiving and gratitude. But then, Lord, this coming day of harvest, when You will return with Your holy angels and You will put in the sickle of judgment and You will... Destroy those who are your enemies. And then gather in those who are your children. Lord, may we be found among those trusting Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for a new life of fellowship in communion with You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, what a glorious future awaits those who are gathered into the new heavens and the new earth, given resurrection bodies and have the hope of eternal fellowship with You. Lord, that day may be a long day off, but our day of death is coming much sooner. And so may we live our lives not under a dread cloud, fearful and, and of judgment, but rather with joyful expectation. And may we do our best, O Lord, to bring as many people along with us as we can as we bear witness to the redeeming grace that You have shown us in Jesus Christ, Your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.